As we teeter on the edge of the culmination of all things, there's a quickening spirit abroad in the earth to bring about God's eternal purposes for mankind, that we might know him. Know me, that you might know me, and love me, and reflect my glory, and reflect me on the earth. So it behoves us, it's right and proper, at this time to examine both image and likeness, because it's our destiny. So we're going to look at loving God. God's goal at every stage of creation and salvation is to magnify his glory. And the glory of God is his nature. God is good. As I've said, you can magnify with a microscope or with a telescope. A microscope magnifies by making tiny things look bigger than they are. A telescope magnifies by making gigantic things like stars which look tiny appear more as they really are. So God created the universe to magnify his glory the way a telescope magnifies stars. Everything he does in our salvation is designed to magnify the glory of his grace. And we are intended to live our lives in such a way that he, he is shown forth in and through us. From his imprisonment in Rome, Paul writes this in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. My earnest expectation and hope is that I will not be put to shame in anything, that, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by death or by life. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is perhaps the clearest biblical statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We magnify him in our lives by experiencing him as our all-surpassing treasure. We love because he first loved us. It is our response to his love. We magnify him in our death by seeing death as gain because we're going to be with him. Paul said, Philippians 1, 23 in the King James Version, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. His aim is that Christ will be exalted or magnified or glorified in his body. And he wants this to happen whether he dies or lives. In life and death, Paul's mission was to magnify Jesus, to declare to the world that Jesus is exceedingly magnificent, to glorify him, to demonstrate his beauty and his majesty. Whether he lived or died, he didn't care as long as Christ was glorified. In my dying, he says, he will be glorified if dying for me is gain. Christ is magnified by Paul's dying if dying is experienced as gain.
Why is that? It's because Christ himself is the gain. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Verse 23 makes this clear. My desire is to depart, that is to die, and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's what death does for us as Christians. It takes us into a deeper intimacy with Jesus. We depart and we're with him, and that's gain. And when you experience death in this way, Paul says, Christ is exalted in your body. Experiencing Christ as gain in your dying magnifies Jesus. It's the essence of worship in the hour of death. If you want to glorify Christ in your dying, you must experience death as being a gain for you. Which means that Jesus Christ must be your prize, your treasure, your joy. He must be a satisfaction so deep that when death takes away everything you love but gives you more of him, you count it gain. When you're satisfied with Christ in dying, he is glorified in your dying. It's the same with life. We magnify Christ in life, Paul says, by experiencing Jesus Christ as our all-surpassing treasure. That's what he means in verse 21 when he says, For me to live is Christ. We know this because in Philippians 3.8, Paul, Paul has said, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So Paul's point is that life and death for a Christian are acts of worship. They exalt Christ and magnify him and reveal and express his greatness when they come from an inner experience of treasuring Christ as gain. The Lord is praised in death by being prized above life. And he's most glorified in life when we are most satisfied in him even before death. The common denominator between living and dying is that Jesus is the all-satisfying treasure that we embrace whether we live or die. Jesus Christ is praised by being prized. He's magnified as a glorious treasure when he becomes our unrivaled pleasure. So if we're going to praise and magnify him, we shouldn't be indifferent as to whether we prize him and find pleasure in him. If Christ's honour is our passion, the pursuit of pleasure in him is our assignment. Jonathan Edwards said this, it's a little complicated but um, try to follow it. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified 
than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as that he testifies also his delight in it. And C.S. Lewis said this in his little book, The Weight of Glory. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We set our sights too low. We're earthbound in our thinking most of the time, he's saying. We're far too easily satisfied. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But, I hear you say, he isn't my satisfaction. I don't love him like that. I never have. I find it hard to trust him. I cannot attain to this at all. There are other things I love more than him. Beloved, he never asks us to do something where he doesn't first equip us. He doesn't tell us to dig a hole without giving us a shovel. So we must be missing something here. God works in us in two ways, through our choices and responsibility, our free will, and through his gracious intervention in areas beyond our control when we admit our need. So we need to look at the place in the cycle of weakness and surrender. There comes a time when we're really at the end of our tether, at the end of ourselves, in the cycles I spoke about earlier. We want to do this thing, we want to walk an intentional lifestyle, but we're at the point of abject weakness. We've tried all the disciplines, denying ourselves, fasting, Bible reading, going to meetings, quiet times, seeking him, doing more, and all we can cry is, I can't do this, God, I can't find, I don't want to do it, and I'm not willing. We meet our own inflexibility head on. We recognise that we don't actually want to give up something right deep down in our heart. He isn't our surpassing treasure, and we're not at all sure we want him to be. At this point, if we are prudent, we'll reach out for help. 
it's possible at this point of absolute weakness and honesty he will come in and enable you to do the impossible he will enable you to surrender because you need a miracle of grace if you will say I am not willing but I am willing to be made willing he will move on your behalf and help you Hugh Black in his little book Consider Him says this about the internal struggle something had insidiously got a grip on my life and I came to a point where I realized the thing was wrong I tried to do something about it but dismally failed I could put it away in prayer but when I rose from my knees it was there just as strongly as ever I felt as though I could go through the motions again and again but it didn't make a whit of difference I was ensnared and I couldn't get out there came a moment of severe conviction from God I knew the thing was sin in his sight and I was desperate I realized that though one part of me wanted to be free another part was beyond my own power to escape one part did not really want freedom but loved the condition I cried to God I was honest and knew I wasn't really prepared to do his will but said in desperation that while I wasn't willing I was willing to be made willing and he worked a miracle in a moment of time let me encourage you today if you feel you cannot reach God if you feel you cannot love God in the way he asks if you feel you cannot trust him with your life and those dear to you call upon him he is near and tell him you are willing to be made willing that's about as far as you can go have an honesty check with him he will give you a miracle but first first you have to be at that point of absolute weakness absolute surrender at the end of yourself are you at that point today have you been round something so many times you recognize all the way marks the path is trodden down hard you could walk it with your eyes shut are you ready to surrender control are you ready to admit you can't do this thing whatever it is because he is ready and willing to give you your miracle he's good he's not mean he's not a miser he's not a withholder he is good don't buy the lie any longer abandon yourself to his nature you cannot do this without him you cannot even be willing unless he works in you to will Philippians 2.13 for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose every situation has been designed for us to discover more of God's beauty and presence and find access to even deeper levels of intimacy with the Almighty confidence is the gateway to that presence we are so welcome in his presence 
He loves every connection he has with us. He enables us to do what we cannot. He knows what we're made of. Our belonging is part of our inheritance in Christ. We are so welcome. Just want to talk now for a moment about your life message. Jesus is our model for the whole of our Christian walk. When he went into the synagogue and proclaimed Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. He was proclaiming his life message and his mandate in the earth. And 1 John 4.17 says, As he is in this world, so are we. His mandate is our mandate. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. We're here to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. We're not here to proclaim judgment, but grace and favour. When the angels came announcing the birth of Jesus, they spoke of the great joy, Luke 2.10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Good news, great joy. Is that what characterises your life? Good news, great joy. We have the good news, and therefore we should be full of great joy. It's our privilege and honour to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's our privilege and honour to walk as he walked and to overcome the evil in this present world with good. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Hey guys, we've got the goods. It's our mandate to begin to put into experience that which we've learnt and become as he is in the world. Changing the atmosphere and bringing release for the captives and healing of the sick, binding up of the broken hearted and freedom for the prisoners. Right at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives his disciples their mandate. Mark sixteen fourteen to 18 and it's headed up the disciples commissioned. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart 
because they had not believed those who had seen him after he'd risen. We do not want to be those who are in unbelief and hardness of heart, do we? Every time we don't believe, we harden our hearts. Don't want that. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them, from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These were the disciples, those who had been with him through his trials, those who had decided what they wanted to do with their lives and were about to live it out. You can see the result of their decisions in the book of Acts as Luke follows them and gives us a commentary on what he saw. Jesus came to put a face on God and we are here to put a face on Jesus by our life, by our words, by our integrity, by our honour, by the way in which we demonstrate who Jesus is. Who we essentially are as a person manifests Jesus in our day-to-day -day life. So nobody is more honest than we are, nobody is more kind than we are, nobody is more loving than we are, nobody is more generous than we are, because that is who Jesus is. So our personal testimony of who he is for us is lived out daily, and it is that which drives our life and ministry. It's the wellspring of our own integrity and authenticity. It's no longer enough to call ourselves Christians and live like everyone else. Finally then, loving others. We've looked at loving God and ourselves, but what about loving our neighbour? God loves the world. He's decided to love the world. And out of that decision came redemption and the revelation of his heart to his family. When he begins to reveal his heart to us, we begin to love the world also. We love the world because we love the Father. That's our motivation for going and serving, because we love whatever he loves and we hate whatever he hates. When you see with the eyes of your heart, you want to be a father pleaser. This keeps you walking with the Lord because you want to please him. This is not only about unconditional love and acceptance. You have those. This is about sonship. Going on to maturity. Relationship and pleasing your heavenly father.
What's my motivation for ministry, for serving God in the way I do? I'm trying to find out what the Father's will is. And then when this son sees what the will of the Father is, I try to begin to do it. That's the way Jesus did it. His heart's desire was to do the will of the Father. That should be our heart's desire too. So, what does your new DNA look like for you? You're a new creation. How does that work for you? What real changes have you observed in your life since you were born again and became a new creation? If you have prophecies over your life, now is the time to reread them and write out who you will need to become to have the character and personality to fulfill that prophecy. What qualities will you need? What attitudes will you have to change? Does God want a change or addition to your personality? As you examine your prophecies, compare and write down any adjustments you'll have to make and the areas which are affected attitudes, beliefs, character issues, etc. Ask the Holy Spirit how He wants to help you change in those areas that you highlight. When you've done this, establish your action plan. Work on these areas by making yourself accountable to someone in your process of change. Tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it. Tell them what you're aiming to become. Ask them to hold you accountable to it in order that they will say to you, you can't do that or say that because this is who you are. By doing this you are developing an intentional lifestyle and allowing the Christ life to be formed in you. Image and likeness. That's it then. We're not where we were. We're not where we're going to be, but we're on our way. God bless you. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. The next time we will be looking at His Majesty, King Jesus.